0: Well, for the past two months, we've been looking at Romans 5 through 8 as a subunit within the larger book of Romans. We started in Romans 5, 1 through 11, thinking about the topic of suffering. And we return to that same topic now in chapter 8. We learned that a basic reality of the Christian life is that Christians will suffer. Suffering is part of the Christian life. It's unavoidable, but it's not without hope. And we saw that picture of hope and salvation last week in Romans 8, 1 through 17, as we saw these pictures of salvation, our release and redemption from sin, and our adoption. But at that end of at the end of that really promising text, Paul offered a qualification that brings us back to suffering when he said that we'll be co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. So we're brought back to the themes of suffering and glory. We've been promised glory, but before glory comes suffering. So we might ask, is the suffering worth it? Is the suffering worth it all? If we run a cost-benefit analysis, at the end of the day... Does the suffering and the hardship pay off as we take up this cruciform life of following Christ? Well, Josh already read the answer to that question. It's yes. Yes, it does pay off, and it's not even worthy of being compared to the glory that is to come. Well, Paul goes on to add details to that answer by giving us four pictures or four helps for suffering with patience and hope. Before we get into that, I just want to acknowledge that we're looking at such a large passage that is so rich and deep. I I just want to encourage you to study this out, and especially for those of you who are undergoing deep suffering read this text over and over again because there are riches that I cannot articulate in this short sermon. There are also really difficult interpretive issues throughout, so I want to recommend two books for you. One, I'd want to recommend N.T. Wright's recent book, Into the Heart of Romans, a deep dive into Paul's greatest letter. And this is basically just a commentary on the book of Romans, chapter 8, where he goes line by line looking at all of the details. And he does a good job of balancing rigorous study with um, really helpful instruction for the Christian life. Then I also want to recommend Haley Gornson Jacob's book, Conformed to the Image of His Son, Reconsidering Paul's Theology of Glory in Romans, and as the lengthy title indicates, this is a bit more of an exhaustive work, Um, but it it provides the support for the theology of glory that we've considered throughout this study in Romans and the comments that I'll make later in this sermon. So if you're up for a more challenging read, I think it really does pay the reader well. Um, She does a good job with that work. And of course, I'm always happy to talk with you about any of these things. But I just want to say there are riches here that will go pass over in this sermon, but I don't want you to pass over them in your studies. Finally, before we look at these four helps, I have to give two qualifications and give one more clarification. There's a lot of preface work needed today, but I, I trust it will help us as we get into the sermon and as you study Romans. But I want to start with the Qualifications first, a brief word of qualification about Paul's statements regarding suffering and the benefit that suffering is and how suffering is not even worthy of being compared with the glory that is to come. Sometimes people make trite statements about suffering and hardship that are hallmark level of trite. They're just passing statements that at the end of the day are not helpful at all in your suffering, and they might even make matters worse. It almost seems like it invalidates suffering. Um, I read one this morning in a commentary that I think the guy was not intending to sound hallmarky in. He was quoting Teresa of of Avila, and she says something like, when you get to heaven, all of the hardships in your life will feel like nothing worse than an inconvenient night at a hotel. You know, that sort of helps, but not really. It doesn't help in the moment, especially when those comments come on a flowery card. Paul is speaking not a hallmark-like statement, but he's speaking from deep suffering and hardship and anguish himself. So when he's saying something like this, he's not speaking as the privileged, wealthy, well-to-do individual who's never experienced a hard thing in his life. He is speaking from deep suffering so we can trust him. So you might hear me talk about these things and say, what do you know of suffering? Listen to Paul who knew deep suffering And don't hear it from that cynical side that wants to discount these statements. Receive it as a word from someone who suffered like you and perhaps, and I'd be willing to bet, even worse than you. The second qualification that I wish to give is related to the call to Christian suffering. This text assumes that Christians are called to suffer. In Romans 8, 17, Paul indicates that we must suffer. That's what we considered in Romans 5 as well. When it comes to Christian suffering, it's a part of the Christian life. But there's a qualification that I think I need to give, and that is that suffering is not a good in and of itself. So, when we talk about suffering, we need to be clear that not all suffering in Christian life is good. It's not true that Christ wants you to suffer whenever it's possible that you might embrace some suffering. There's no inherent good in suffering, as if Christians should look for opportunities for hardship. There's no inherent good in suffering. Suffering is not the way it's supposed to be even as we understand that suffering is part of the Christian life. So we can look at Paul once again, who we know was not afraid to embrace suffering, but he was also not afraid to evade suffering and avoid suffering when Christ was not calling him to it. He was happy to be let down in a basket by night to avoid persecution. There are times when we should avoid suffering and get out of suffering. So when you hear me calling you to suffer as a Christian, I'm not saying that you should just embrace every bad thing that comes your way and just say, poor me, this is just what Jesus wants for me. There are occasions when under the wise counsel of other Christians and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we ought to run from suffering. We ought to get away from it. There are times when we allow fear and uncertainty and codependency and despair and even laziness to allow us to be captured in suffering when what god would really want for you is for you to get out of that suffering so what i want to tell you is if you are feeling like god is calling you to this suffering that just won't ever let go and you've never talked to other christians or to a pastor i would encourage you to do that it may be that god is calling you to endure maybe for the rest of your life in that situation but it may also be that you're embracing something that God does not want for you, and you just need other Christians to speak into that situation. So I'd urge you to talk to others, even as you understand that suffering is a part of our Christian life, so that we will be glorified with Christ on the final day. Okay, I've gotten those two qualifications out. Now a final textual clarification. When we read Romans when Paul says that the suffering is not even worthy of comparison to the glory that is going to be revealed to us, I prefer the NIV translation. In my judgment, they do a better job when they render the phrase in us rather than for us, with the result that the glory that will be revealed in us is not worthy of comparison to the suffering we're presently experiencing. The difference in translation, though small, is worth pointing out because it reshapes what Paul's talking about. Rather than glory being a place that we arrive at or a vision that we have... It's something that happens within us. And it links back to Romans eight seventeen, when Paul talks about the glory that we'll participate in with Christ. And it links back to Romans 5, 1 through 5, when our suffering is described as eventuating in a participation in the glory of God. The revealing of glory is a revealing of glory in Christians. It's a renewal of the whole person— that restores redeemed humanity to the original created state where humans were crowned with glory and honor. This clarification is necessary because if we conceive of glory as a place that we'll arrive at, or a possession of wealth that we'll receive, or a place of comfort, then we instinctively know that there are certain kinds of suffering, There are certain tragedies and losses and hardships that all the wealth in the world cannot recompense. There are certain trials that we will undergo that just finding a place of comfort at the end of it will never bring healing from the hurt that we experienced along the way. So if when you hear about the future glory... All that you're seeing is a mansion in the sky or a golden street or a nice relaxing vacation. And if you think that's the glory that's not worthy of comparing your suffering to, then I'm going to propose that eventually you'll run into some suffering that will be worthy of comparing to it and the suffering will win out in the end. The glory that's being described is not just comfort at the end of the day. Rather, it's a complete transformation of you a transformation of the self that involves a radical transformation into the image of Christ and a crowning with glory and honor such that the fractured and broken self that you and I are will eventually become whole and holy as we're brought into the presence of Christ forever as we experience what some theologians call a Christification, a transformation of the self into the very image of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when Paul talks about this glory, he's not just talking about something you can point out that, you know, makes the hardship worth it or, or some heavenly abode where we're rescued from the hardship of earth. Rather, he's talking about a resetting of all things, including a resetting of you to glory and honor That's comparable to the glory and honor of the resurrected Christ. The end result, that end result, makes every bit of suffering worth it. So Paul answers the question, is suffering worth it? With a resounding, yes, it's worth it. But then we might ask, okay, Paul. Suffering is worth it. If suffering is worth that glory, how is it that we can suffer well? How is it that we can make it to glory? How is it that we can endure this suffering? Paul responds with four helps that allow us to suffer well, that allow us to bear up suffering as we await the final glory. The first that he gives us is the promise of the curses reversal the promise of the curses reversal and you'll be confused as you look at the slide just look at me for a moment that's okay that was last week um paul promises that the curse and all that came with it will be reversed in glory He describes the future reverse of the curse that came as a result of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden in verses 18 through 25. and there, he focuses first on the curse with regard to the created cosmos, and then second on the curse with regard to humanity. In verse 22, Paul describes creation as groaning like a woman in labor. The reason for this labor pain groaning is that creation is bondage to decay it's been subjected to futility that's a result of god's curse on planet earth in response to human sin the point is that as humans go so go creation humans went to sin and now creation is in bondage to sin yet creation is waiting with eager anticipation for the sons of god to be revealed Why is it that creation is waiting for the sons of God to be revealed? Because as goes humanity, so goes creation. So when the sons of God are revealed in their glory, creation will be soon to follow. When God's sons, when God's children are crowned again with the glory and the honor that we've just talked about about, they'll, be taken, they'll take up again that creation mandate to exercise dominion over the earth and bring about flourishing and goodness on this created world. The co-heirs of Christ will receive their full inheritance, the entire world, and they'll go about setting all things right, causing it to be a place of flourishing and harmony and delight, a place of shalom, as we just sang about in the song that Josh taught us in the exercise of dominion of the sons of god the curse will be reversed and replaced with blessing so who is it that are the sons of god it's us it's all people who have been identified with christ as we considered last week in romans eight fourteen. so what does it mean for the sons of god to be revealed Well, Paul hints at it in Romans 8.23, connecting our own groaning to the labor pain groaning of the earth. The full revelation of the sons of God, Paul says, is the resurrection, the redemption of our physical bodies. A revealing that will only take place at Christ's return. So Paul's personification of the earth's groaning as with labor pains is especially fitting in this picture as we think about the resurrection, redemption of the bodies of God's children. It's as if the groaning earth is pregnant with all of those who have died in Christ and at the resurrection, the children of God will be born to new life, to resurrection life, revealed for all that they're intended to be. The suffering that culminates in our death and that places our decaying bodies in the ground of mother earth, we might say, are planted like seeds that will be born through the labor pains of the earth. It's like we're seeds that have died and have been placed in the ground, but will burst forth and will bear fruit that brings life forevermore. And just as there's some continuity between the seed and the plant that sprouts forward, there is some continuity between our bodies that will go into the ground and our resurrection bodies that will burst out, even as there's great difference between the two. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15, if you want to consider this metaphor more. But the point is this. In the present time, It is true that we are already the adopted children of God, redeemed from sin. But it's also true that the fullness of our adoption, the full revelation of the sons of God has not yet taken place. But that day is coming, and when it comes, it will be glorious as the curse is reversed both for us as people and for the world as a whole. All things will be set right and we'll be living in the world as God created it to be as God intended it to be, not as it is now. For that reason, our suffering will be worth the glory that we enter into. But I I wonder if you might be hearing that and you might be thinking, that sounds good, but why can't God just make it happen now? Why can't God just snap his fingers and get the job done and bring about the glory? Why must we wait? I don't know that I have a great answer for you. Some days I do just kind of wonder, why can't it just all happen now? Why can't Jesus just return now and set all things right fully and finally? I, I can't give you a totally good answer for that. But I think without pressing Paul's analogy too far, we can say something like this. We can't experience the full glory now because neither the created world nor our unredeemed bodies are quite ready for it. The fullness of glory takes time to develop. Similar to the way that a baby needs to take time to develop in the womb and that a mother must wait with hopeful expectation even through some measure of suffering and is willing to do so so that the baby can fully develop, so too must we be willing to wait for the created cosmos in our own selves to develop through suffering so that we can be born into glory and live forevermore with Christ. I, I don't know all the reasons it's taking so long for this to happen. Just like some of the mothers all around here, I've heard you talk as your due date comes closer, you just can't wait for the baby to come, but you also know you, you need to wait till the due date. It would be bad if it happened prematurely. Just want to say it would, maybe, maybe we wouldn't be ready for it. Maybe we're just premature right now. And as we wait with groaning, with lament, we can say we know we need to wait, even though we can't articulate fully why, but we know it, w- it will be worth it when we're born into the glory of God and we experience that fullness of life in the new creation forevermore. So we can suffer with patience and hope, knowing that even without all of our questions answered, there's a promise that the curse will be reversed and will live in glory forever. So help number one, that allows us to endure suffering with patience and hope is this promise of the curses reverse. Help number two is the prayer of the Holy Spirit. The prayer of the Holy Spirit. Paul teaches us in Romans eight twenty six and 27 that God's Spirit prays for us in our suffering. While the creation is groaning and while we are groaning in our suffering, remarkably, God himself enters into our suffering and adds his groaning to our own. He prays for us when we don't even know what to pray for. We don't always know what to pray for in suffering, do we? Sometimes the only prayer we can think to pray is, God, get me out of this suffering. We don't know what to pray, and that's okay. Okay. God knew that was going to be the case and that's why God himself prays for us on our behalf. God enters into our suffering. He adds his groaning into it and he intercedes with us praying what we would pray if we knew what we should pray. God's Holy Spirit prays what we should be praying if we knew that everything that God knows. I think we can say it's probably a kindness of God that he doesn't answer all of our prayers in the way that we speak them and we can take great confidence as some have um, pictured of the Holy Spirit reworking our prayers revising them translating them into the will of God so that God hears and answers and does according to his will and does what we would want if we knew everything that God knows. This is something that I come back to time and again when I just don't know what to pray for. I just pray, God, help me want in this situation what I would want if I knew everything that you know. The fact is, I don't know everything that God knows, so we must rely on the Holy Spirit to intercede on our behalf, but we can do so with confidence knowing that he does. So one way that we can shape our lives by the revelation that the Holy Spirit groans with us and prays for us is to understand that in this groaning of the Spirit, I think we're actually given permission to groan. The fact that God groans alongside us gives us permission to express lament to God in our hardship. The fact that the Holy Spirit, we might say, empathizes with you, gives you permission to speak to God truly about what you are feeling and experiencing and suffering. You don't have to pretend like the hardship isn't there. You don't have to pretend like the difficulty isn't deep and unrelenting. You don't have to pretend like you're a stoic without emotion. Instead, you can lament. And I think it would be good for our church to keep learning songs for miserable Christians. It would be good for us to have services that are marked by lament so that we can speak truly about our hardship to God. Even as the Holy Spirit speaks truly to God about our hardship. So I want to encourage you, take your complaints to God. But when you're tempted to complain about God or at God, allow that complaint to be reshaped by the laments of Christians and God's people before you in hymns and in the Psalms and in the scriptures so that you won't complain at God or about God, but you'll complain to him because he's the one who can do something about your hardship and he's the one who groans with you in your hardship i can 't spend any more time on this point, but I know there are many of you who are wrestling with that very question where, where you feel a compl- uh, you feel tempted to complain because of God instead of to God, and you're in a hardship and suffering and in lament that y- that you don 't know how to handle well so I, I want to give you another resource by this guy, Todd Billings so little book called Rejoicing in Lament. He wrote this while he was wrestling with incurable cancer. And this this book is instructive and it's coming from the place of a guy who's in deep suffering and it's really really moving. So if you're saying I don't know how to lament well, I don't know how to suffer well, I don't know how to complain to God and not about God, I I'd, I'd recommend just slowly reading through this book read it through with another christian in our church who you've let into your suffering a little bit and talk about it and and come to god with your complaints and your laments resting in the holy spirit who's lamenting with you and for you so we're given the promise of the reversal of the curse, and we're given the prayers of the Holy Spirit to help us in our suffering. But we're also given, then, the providential care of God. We're given the providential care of God. In Romans eight twenty-eight through 30, Paul assures his readers that God is superintending all things, that God is working in all things to bring out of evil good. And while these verses certainly might inform us about our doctrine of salvation, especially as it regards the debates between Arminians and Calvinists, it's striking to me that Paul's focus on the providence of God here has nothing to do with that and everything to do with enabling Christians to rest in God's power and goodness in times of hardship and suffering. In these verses, we do learn about the doctrine of salvation, but more than that, we learn about God's kind hand that reorchestrates all of the evil in this world into great good for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. I am finding it difficult to remark fully and well on these verses in part because we sometimes trivialize them or better yet we take them and we plug them into trivial situations and we almost neuter them of what they're intended to do so let me give you a, a really silly example of the way that we do this um, we we might encounter a situation where like we put in our order in the drive-through and they messed it up and it caused us to be a little late to our meeting but they gave us not only the drink that they messed up that we still would have liked but also the other drink that we really wanted and god worked all things together for good so now we got two drinks out of that instead of just one go romans 8:28 when we do things like that we're trivializing everything not only that we're making things all about us in the silliest of ways And then when we really need to reflect on God's providential ability to work in our errors, in our our hardships to bring about good, it's almost like we've given away that resource to the trivial moments of life. So I want to encourage you, don't use this verse for those kind of things. Instead of counting a messed up Starbucks order as evil, Just say this is just a mishap in life and praise God for his abundant blessings that sometimes come in the form of an extra Starbucks drink so that when you face deep suffering, true hardship, when evil actually happens to you, you have recourse to the God who works out all things together for the good of those who love him to those who are called according to his purpose so that you will have in mind situations like that of Joseph, whose brothers tried to kill him and then enslaved him and then came to him for help, who was able to say without an ounce of selfishness, look at the God who takes what you intended for evil and brought good out of it. So that when you face that cancer diagnosis and whether you see that good in this life or you know the good will only be revealed to you at the resurrection, you can rest in the God who works all things together for good. So in your broken marriage, you can believe that God works that breaking out for your good according to his purposes even if you can't see it yet because you've read of his working out evil for good in the lives of saints for centuries before you. So let's not trivialize these verses, but instead apply it to these moments where we experience true evil and real suffering so that we can rest in the goodness and grace of God. We can endure suffering with patience and hope. Because over and over again, God proves that he works all things together for good. Even if it's not on our timetable. We've seen then that we can endure suffering with patience and hope. Because our suffering is part of that larger story of redemption that is reversing the curse on creation. We can endure with suffering because we're receiving the prayers of the Holy Spirit who groans with us in our suffering. We can suffer well because of the providential care of God that brings about good out of evil. Then finally, Paul draws attention to the love of God in Christ that is forever present, that's persistently present with his people. A love that cannot be severed by any form of suffering. So Paul asks, what are we then to say about these things? This is what we can say, that we have the love of God with us forever. Nothing can separate us from God's love, regardless of what comes at us. This theologian Michael Byrd is a guy I really like to read in part because he has a way of lightning heavy theological topics with his great sense of humor. And he does so um, as he comments on this text about the inseparability of God's love. I want to read it for you because I think it will maybe give you some ways to rephrase this text in your own mind. He says this, he says, there are no jaws of life no pliers, no chainsaw, no firewall that can keep us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He goes on, God's love sticks to us like a post-it note made with heavenly glue, like divine bubble gum that was predestined to be mashed into your hair, like a tattoo of Jesus with the Holy Spirit ink that cannot be removed, or like a teenage girl holding on to tickets for a One Direction concert. God's love is like himself— constant, unchanging, unmovable, and faithful, however you want to imagine it. It, As Paul goes through this, it's like he's listing everything that he could possibly think of that could possibly separate us from God's love. He says, whatever you can think of, whatever you can imagine, that thing cannot separate you from God's love because God's love is going to hold on to you forever. (laughs) I think a good practice for all of us would be to take Romans 8, 31 through 39, and for all of the things that Paul says can't separate us from the love of God, to to write a blank in there and fill it in with the things that you believe might separate you from God's love, or to fill it in with the hardship that you might be facing. You should come up with your own I am persuaded kind of list in imitation of Paul. Something like, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor democratic nor republican politicians, nor interest rates nor stock markets, nor unbelieving spouse nor rebellious children, nor lost job nor broken down car, nor cancer, nor allergic reaction, or miscarriage, or any other thing will be able to separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Take Paul's list and make it your list because whatever you're filling in there is interchangeable, but what stays the same is the persistent love of God. Become persuaded of that love Document it down. Rehearse it daily as needed, allowing that list to become a true speaking tool in your life that will enable you to suffer well alongside Paul and all other Christians who have their own I am persuaded kind of list. God's love will not leave you regardless of what you face. As we conclude then, I wonder if you look at these four resources for your suffering, and in particular, the love of God, and you think, great, that that's just not doing it for me. I don't really care that the love of God is with me or not. I just want out of this situation. I think the fact is, That if nothing, the truth that nothing can separate you from the love of God just will never matter to you unless the love of God is the thing that matters most to you. So without being insensitive, I want to suggest that maybe even in this deep suffering and hardship that you're facing, maybe this is the very tool that God will use to make his love be everything for you if something else is your ultimate reality, the money that you lost, or the health that's jeopardized, or the relationship that's broken, if something else has become your ultimate reality, then I don't think that these helps will do for you what they can actually do for you. But if you subordinate all of your other loves to your love for God, if you subordinate all other affections to him, if you allow God's love for you to be the ultimate reality in your life, then these helps become real and truly helpful. If you can separate your heart from clinging onto all other things, if you remove those things, then I think you'll make way for God's love to actually reach you so that you'll be able to suffer, come what may. Do you wonder why people who look like they have all the wealth in the world and perfect health and everything else are just thrown off kilter by the smallest amount of suffering? It's because their hearts haven't been open to the love of God that can take them through that suffering. So I'd encourage you if you look at these helps and you say they just won't do it, they aren't doing it for me, maybe, just maybe you've closed yourself off to the love of God and God wants this suffering to cut off all other loves so that you can embrace his warm affection and endure suffering and hardship with patience and hope. I want to pray for you and for me and for all of us that will do this, that will give our hearts over to God and that will suffer well with hope and patience as we await the glory to come. God, we come before you, bringing our suffering and our hardship, confessing that some of us have not suffered well, confessing that some of us have loved other things so tightly that when you take them away from us in our suffering, we've had no room in our hearts for your love to bear with us. I ask that you would, circumcise our hearts so that we can love you fully and truly. I pray for all those who are hurting and suffering in this room that you would meet them with the groaning of the Holy Spirit and with the promise of the future and with your providential care and with your deep and abiding love that is in Christ so that they and all of us can suffer with patience and hope, grabbing firmly unto the Christ who holds us fast. We pray that you would work all of this in us for our good and your glory. In Christ we pray. Amen.